But what a joy it is to worship this morning. Those songs, wonderful, wonderful. The Lord has really blessed us to give us, all of you, to be here today. I mean, I really appreciate you coming back every week to hear judgment passages preached on. That really takes some sanctification there. And we're going to be in judgment for a few more weeks, not, not specifically in the judgment of God, just to come and sing songs of the gospel and Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. And then we get to look at passages like we've been looking at in Romans 1, now in Romans 2, to see what God has saved us from. What a blessing. What a joy. We should give thanks to him every day. You should be on your knees every day saying, God, thank you. God did not have to choose you for salvation. He did not have to do that. He chose to do that for his own good purposes. And we should be so grateful for it. There was nothing in us that made God do what he did. It was all him. It was all his grace. Well, I invite you to open now to our pinnacle of worship where we hear God's word. God's word is broadcast. It's proclaimed in the expository preaching of the word. We're looking at Romans 2 this morning, verses 12 and 13, a message that I've entitled, Judge by the Law. Judged by the Law. We've been considering and working through, and I've been preaching on Romans, each week we take a passage and I explain it, I exposit it verse by verse, and then suggest application. Of course, you need to listen and and take notes and focus on how to apply it, and the Spirit works through you to do that. But I will often suggest applications, sometimes more than one. The text itself will tell us sometimes how to apply that teaching. So we're looking this morning at Romans I want to read starting in verse 1, though, even though we're going to be looking at 12 and 13. I want you to catch the context of where we've been these last few weeks. And that always helps us. It always helps in a passage, and especially this one, because it, it is a difficult passage. It will help us to go back and see what's Paul's argument. Paul builds an argument. He builds a logical argument. And sometimes our modern ears and modern minds can't always follow it. And so we want to slow down. We want to process it. We want to think about it. And see, what is he trying to say? What does God want the Apostle Paul to say in this text? 2-1, therefore, you are without excuse, O man. Everyone who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay to each according to his works, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and anger, there will be affliction and turmoil for every soul of man who works out evil. And of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no 
partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, Paul has been teaching us in chapter 2 that as a Jew, they don't necessarily receive some sort of free pass. Yes, they have the Bible, and that is a wonderful gift. He's going to talk about that later. But just because they have the Bible doesn't automatically mean that they will be saved. They were looking down their noses at the Gentiles. They were saying, well, of course the Gentiles will be judged. Of course. But we're Jews. We're righteous. We have the Bible. We read it in the synagogue. We hear it. We hear teaching on it. We have the oracles of God. We have the law. And in this chapter, he is addressing How the unbelieving Jew, the unconverted Jew, the Jew who has not trusted in Messiah, in Jesus Christ as Savior, is condemned as well. Just like the Gentile who doesn't have Jesus Christ as Savior is condemned, so is the Jew. And he's building this argument and he's giving examples. And we saw last time in in 5 through 11, I preached two messages where he says, look, everyone is divided into two groups. There's two types of people. And we see this over and over. This two groups, two ways, two paths, two gates. Jesus said the narrow gate and the wide gate. Well, now Paul uses the idea of two groups. There's two groups. There's the group that is living in unrighteousness. They're sinning against God. They know what God demands. They know what his commands are. They sin against God and they will be judged. And then there are those, he says, who do good. Those who by perseverance, in verse 7, they do good. And I argued last time that this is the believer. This is the person who has a new heart. Paul's not mentioning that in this text because his focus is on judgment. His focus is on a judgment according to works. And so he's not including all of this talk about justification by faith. He'll devote a whole chapter to it in chapter 4. And starting really in the middle of chapter 3. Right now he's talking about judgment. He says... Look, the person that you see living out good things, they're doing good works, they're doing good deeds, they will receive eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious, who do not obey the truth, who live unrighteously, they will receive judgment. They will be paid back for their work and their reward, their payment will be eternity in hell under the wrath of God. Now he starts a new paragraph, a new thought here, and he's going to explain how there is no partiality with God. God doesn't look at the Jew and say, you're excused, but I'm going to punish the Gentiles. God judges equally. God weighs the standard of his law against both Jew and Gentile. Everyone, in other words, is going to be rewarded for what they do. If you're in Christ, then you'll be rewarded with all the rewards of heaven. And the Bible says the more we serve the Lord with our time, with our talents, with our money, with our gifting, the more he will reward the believer. But it's the same for the unbeliever. The more that the unbeliever works evil in their life, the more sin they commit, the more knowledge they have about God and yet turn away from it, the more they will be judged for it. Their payment, their reward will be a more severe level of punishment in hell. 
So he's making this argument. He's really trying to get the Jewish person to wake up. The Jewish person that's listening to this message. Maybe they're attending the church in Rome and they say, you know, some of my friends have gone to this church, this Christian thing. I want to go see what it's about. And this letter is being read. Maybe the Christians, like many of us, will hear this message and take it to their Jewish friends. Certainly, though, it applies to so many Americans today. People who grew up in the church. People who know the Bible. You could just change the word Jew to cultural Christian today. And it would almost fit to a T. The application is definitely for our time, for our place, for our country today. Well, Paul is going to explain here why is it, or really how, God's judgment is impartial. It's not, God, God is not partial to the Jews and excuse them. And so I want to show you in today's text two ways, two ways that show us how God's judgment is impartial. Paul backs up what he says. When he makes a claim, he now proves it. Sometimes he'll cite scripture. Sometimes he'll just make a logical argument that is founded upon scripture. Other times, he knows they already believe what he's saying, and he just restates it. And that's really what he's doing here. None of what he's saying here to a Jew would be something brand new. Sometimes we read some of this text, and we see justified, a doer of the law will be justified. And we struggle with that theologically. And we're going to talk about that today. The Jew would have read that and said, I perfectly understand what you're saying. Their problem wasn't that they didn't know it. They just set it aside. They knew the truth. And they set it aside. They forgot it. They intentionally forgot it and made up their own theology, made up their own way of salvation. Well, number one of the two ways, number one, both Jew and Gentile will be judged based on the law they have been given. Both Jew and Gentile. They're both receiving a law from God and they will be judged based on that. God is righteous. God is fair. He's not going to judge somebody based on something they've never heard of, something they've never read, never seen, never known in their own heart. All God has to do is take the evidence of what they've done with their life and compare it to the law that he's given them. And it's a, it's a closed case. It's done. At the judgment, that's all that needs to happen. Here's what you did. Here's what God told you to do. And did you even do that? Verse 12, he opens this up. He says, for. Anytime you see the word for, he's usually explaining what came right before. There are other uses of the word for. But here he's explaining, he's opening up what he just said about God's impartiality. For all who have sinned without the law. Who are these who have sinned without the law? Well, the law in this whole discussion here is the law of Moses. We'll see that later. He gives the law of Moses to Israel. But there are some who did not receive the law. Who are those? Those are Gentiles. The Gentiles did not receive the law of Moses. And yet he says they have still sinned. The Jews have the law given to them by God through Moses. On Mount Sinai, he gave them the law. He started with the Ten Commandments. Then he gave them more specific laws, case laws. What to happen if a neighbor kills your animal? And then he gave them laws on how to worship and how the priest should function and everything. And he gave them a very specific law. And it really, you could say it runs all the way from Exodus all the way through Malachi. The Mosaic law, really better titled the Israelite law. But since Moses gave it, we call it the Mosaic law. Very detailed, very specific. But to the Gentiles, they they did not receive this law. 
That's not the people that God chose. He chose one nation to give a law to. He chose one nation to redeem out of Egypt, to redeem out of bondage. That's Israel. But to the Gentiles, they have been given a law. They have been given a law. We, we sometimes call it natural law or the moral law. They know right from wrong. Everybody is born with a sense of right and wrong. Look a little bit further down in verse 14 here. For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally, that's where we get the word natural law from, naturally do the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. And that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternatively accusing and else defending them. We'll look more at that passage next week, but see what Paul's saying here. The Gentile doesn't have the law of Moses. They don't have the Pentateuch. They don't have the writings of Moses. They don't have the Bible. They still know right from wrong. Every culture and society, every culture that's ever existed, every person that's ever been born knows right from wrong. How can that be? How can that be? Well, God put it there. And the fact that he created them, he created them to know what right is and what wrong is. We already saw this back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 21. Sometimes people say, well, the Gentile who's never heard of God cannot be sent to hell. And they think sometimes that these people that haven't heard of Christ, they haven't heard of God, would not be sent to hell. They, they sort of get a free pass. Well, in verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, for even though they knew God, they knew God. They did not glorify him. He's talking about ancient pagan cultures. Today, with internet and access, most people can at least get to something biblical. Now, there's still some cultures that don't have that. There's still some areas that are locked down, and it's hard to get Bibles in. But in those days, there was no way to get the gospel. And yet, it says they knew God. They did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. What does this mean? We'll go back to verse 20. Since the creation of the world, since God created all things, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood. Not just did did they see the world and know that there was a God, but they understood. They understood through what has been made that there is a creator and that they are without excuse. Well, how did that happen? How did they know there's a God? You just look at a tree and you know there's a God. Well, it tells us, if you back up one more verse, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. He gave a law to Israel. He told exactly, he told Moses what to write down. But he also, to all people, he also put in their heart and in their mind the knowledge of him and that he exists. Not the whole Bible. Don't get me wrong. The Gentiles do not know all that we have in Scripture. If that was the case, then God would not have all these people write the Bible. The Bible is God's special revelation. And his general revelation is seen in nature. It's seen in providence, the way he acts throughout history. And it is in the heart, the morality that everyone has. I don't have to tell my kids when they're two years old that they shouldn't hurt their siblings. Now, I do have to tell them over and over because they still try to do it. But they know it's wrong when they do it. They know. How do they know? Because everyone's born with a sense of right and wrong. So that is 
who Paul is talking about when he says without the law. And they've still sinned because they're sinning against the knowledge they have. What is the knowledge they have? They know what's wrong and they still do it. And he says, they will also perish without the law. So the Jew thinks, well, I have the law and they don't have the law. So of course they're going to perish. And Paul's saying, yeah, they don't have the law like you do, but they still have a law. God has still put a law of right and wrong in their hearts. And they're going to perish without that. Even though the idea he's saying is even though they don't have the law of Moses, they're going to be eternally punished. Why? How can God do that? Because they've sinned. People go to eternal punishment because they have sinned against a perfect and holy God. If they've never heard of Jesus, then they can't sin by denying Christ, but they can sin according to Romans 1. They can sin against God by not giving him thanks, not glorifying him because he's made himself known to them. So this verse, along with with so many others, say that it's not the case that people get a free pass. If someone is born somewhere in America or somewhere in the world probably today and they never see the Bible, they don't get a free pass into heaven. They still know right and wrong. And because of our nature, which you'll get to in chapter 5, because of our nature, they still sin. Even those who don't have the law of Moses, even though they don't have the written word of God, they are still going to be judged by their sin. That's right. That's fair. We want that in our society, don't we? If somebody says, well, you know, I didn't know it was wrong to go and kill all those people. I just didn't know it. Would you want a judge to let them go free so they can keep on doing that? We want what's fair, what's just, what's righteous. And God is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And Paul goes on here. He says, then there's this other group, all who have sinned under the law. These are the Jews. They have been given the law of Moses. They are under the law. The group of Gentiles, they've never been given the Bible. They've never been given the law of Moses. They're not under, but God chose Israel and said, okay, I've saved you. Now obey me. Here is my law. Here is how I want to be worshipped. Here is how you're supposed to live. Here is how you're supposed to love me and love your neighbor, God says. They are under the law. In other words, the law sets the boundaries. And you know with the law when you've crossed the line. The Gentile would know what's right and wrong when it comes to hurting somebody, when it comes to killing somebody. But they wouldn't know exactly how to worship God. They just know that they ought to give God thanks. So they make up their own. That's what he's talking about. Feudal speculations in chapter 1. They make up their own way to worship God. It's not so with the Jews. He's told them exactly how to worship him. It's the same with the church today. We don't get to just make up how we do church. Just turn it into some big rodeo. And there are rodeos that happen in churches and wrestling events and all of these things. We don't get to do that. God has revealed in his word exactly what we should do. Well, Paul says, all who have sinned under the law, these are the Jews. And God is not partial. Without law, you'll be judged without law based on what God has given you. And with the law, you'll be judged. But you're held even more accountable because now you have God's revelation. Now you have more information, more knowledge. He says, those with the law, those under the law will be judged by that law. In other words, he's getting at there's a greater judgment. The Jews think they won't be judged because they have God's word. God is our God. We know his covenant name. We have the Bible. And what he's saying here, Paul is, is that you're going to be held to higher accountability. There is more accountability because God has revealed himself. 
And now you're under the Mosaic law. You know what it says. They grew up reciting it. They grew up hearing it in synagogue. The fathers were supposed to teach the children the law. They knew. And so when they disobey it, that's a worse judgment. He says they will be judged by that law. People are judged according to the light, the knowledge that they receive. Everybody receives some knowledge, even the Gentile who's on an island in a cave who's never been another person. He's still going to be judged according to the moral law that God put in his heart. But the Jew, or we could say the modern American who attends church their whole life, who has a whole Bible and multiple translations and study Bibles and commentaries and listens to sermons their whole life and still disobeys and still turns away from Christ, how much more judgment, how much more light have they had in their life that they have turned away from? God doesn't judge a person for the light they never received, but all receive some light. Some receive more light and are held accountable to that. We see this in the parable Jesus tells in Luke 12, 1247. I won't go through the whole parable, but it's about the, the master who returns and he has these slaves. And, it, and it's, he's talking about the slave who disobeyed. The slave who knew his master's will, though, and did not get ready. So this is the person who knew the master was coming back. They said, I'm your slave. I follow you, Lord. I'm your ma- you're my master. I'm your slave. They did not get ready. They didn't actually live out what they said. They knew he was coming back. They did nothing about it. They did not act, he says, in accord with the master's will. He will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know that the master was coming back and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. He's still being punished. The Gentile still goes to hell, but the Jew receives even more judgment, even more punishment, because they had the whole revelation of God, particularly now with the New Testament. It's right there. You have to stop up your ears. And most societies and most, well, I would say most churches, but unfortunately too many churches don't preach the Bible. You would have to ignore the whole Bible as a Jew to not see that the Messiah is coming, that there is good news. And he is going to hold them to even a higher standard. From everyone, Jesus says, who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. The more no- and this works for the Christian too. The more knowledge he gives, even the true believer, the more you're expected to take that and do something with it. You're supposed to obey it. You're supposed to live it out. Now with the believer, we're talking about different levels of rewards in heaven. But with the unbeliever here, he's talking about different levels of punishment in hell. You remember Jesus said, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin, because they rejected him. It'll be worse for you, he tells those villages, than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to be punished more because they had the light of Jesus Christ who did miracles in their town, and they still rejected him. Now, Hebrews 10 makes this even clearer. In Hebrews 10, you've got the Hebrew who's been converted to Christianity, and he's writing, the writer of Hebrews is to this group, and they're really wanting to go back to the old covenant. They're wanting to go back under the Mosaic law. and They're going to convert back to Judaism and deny Christ. And so he says, here's what's going to happen. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? 
to know, to come to church, to hear the Bible, to say you're a Christian, to say Christ has died for you, and then to turn around and actually deny that and go back? That's like trampling underfoot the Son of God. How much severe punishment. And he goes on. Hebrews 10, 29, he goes on. He says, And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. You see, the apostate, and this is really popular today, that people apostatize. They grow up in the church. They go to college. Maybe they become an adult. Now they post their whole video on social media, how they're deconstructing. They're moving away from Christianity. And this text says, how much severe the punishment? How much more are they going to be punished? Because they had all this knowledge and they've insulted Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by turning away. So that's the first point. Both Jews and Gentiles will be judged based on the law that they have been given. Secondly, and this, this is a, really a, a movement forward in his argument. Number two, obedience to God's law is the standard by which all are judged. Now remember, judgment is according to works. We established that back in 5 through 11. Judgment is according to works. Judgment means you come before the judge and he makes a ruling. And based on that ruling, there's punishment or there's rewards. We're not talking about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We're not talking about right now in this life. If you trusted in Christ and you truly have turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus, then you've been declared righteous. You have been declared righteous. You can know that. You can have assurance. We'll still come before the judgment seat of Christ, it says, so that he can give rewards. And the unbeliever also will go before the judgment seat and be punished. So let's look at how Paul develops the argument here that obedience to God's law is the standard by which all are judged. Verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law. So he's now explaining what he just said in verse 12. It's not the hearers of the law who are just before God. You see, they said, we have our Bibles. I grew up in the church. I went to Sunday school as a kid. I went to church. I went to youth group. I went to youth camp. I went to church as an adult. Therefore, I am a saved person. Well, they would have said the same thing. We go to synagogue. We hear the Bible read. The Old Testament is read every time there's a reading. Remember they asked Jesus to come in to the synagogue and do a reading? And he picked texts that had to do with him and it angered them. There's always a reading and then there's a teaching. Jesus taught from the text that he read. And they said, we hear the law all the time. We have Moses and the prophets. And they were well acquainted with the Bible. They could, they could quote scripture better than most of us. You probably met some unbelievers like that, that can quote scripture better than you. There was a time when everybody had to memorize the Bible, memorize the New Testament. And they can quote scriptures and they can tell you sometimes what sounds like really good theology. And yet they'll admit they're not saved. How is that possible? Well, we see it right here. Hearers, the law. The, the, the term he uses in Greek for hearers is a professional listener. They made it a practice of going and listening and reading and knowing what the law says. And Paul says, that does not make you a just person. That does not make you righteous. You can't stand before God and say, you know, God, I heard the Bible. That's my proof. I heard it. What does it matter if you know what is right, but never do it? Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 7 to those people who will stand before him on the last day? 
Let's take this over into the, to the new covenant. Jesus says, they'll stand before me on the last day. And they'll wonder why they're being sent for punishment. They're wondering why they're going to hell. And they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And what does he say? I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's not saying that he doesn't know all things. He's saying there's coming a day when how a person lives will show what's truly in their heart. They can't just say they were his, but it will show in their life. They can't just say they hear the Bible and know the Bible and can debate with the best theologians, especially online. I spend all day doing apologetics on Facebook. I must be saved. That won't work. It won't work. God expects you to live out what you claim to be. And that's where he's going with this next part of the verse. But the doers of the law will be justified. Those who actually live out what God commands. Those who live it out. Those who do the Bible. Don't just hear it. This verse, of course, has caused a lot of questions. I mean, it really it begs a huge question, doesn't it? It wouldn't to the Jew. It just made sense. This is what they've always been told. But this brings up the question, what does he mean the doers of the law will be justified? And really the issue is everywhere else Paul uses the term justification. Everywhere else he talks about justified, whether it's in Romans, and he, he, he will a lot, or in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or Galatians. He's talking about being declared righteous By faith alone in Christ alone. Because of what Christ has done. He has earned perfect righteousness in his perfect life. And then he died on the cross. And he transferred it to us. He was perfect. What did he need to come to the earth for and live a perfect life? He already was perfect. He lived under the law. So that when he died on the cross and we trust in him. That gets applied to us. The crucifixion is forgiveness. And so all of our sins get taken away. And then we get his perfect righteousness. That active obedience where he obeyed the law perfectly. He never sinned. So that's the issue is that everywhere else, that's clearly what Paul's talking about. So what does he mean here that the doers of the law will be justified? Well, some say this is a hypothetical. This is hypothetical. That He's saying, if you live perfectly, you could be justified. That's a popular way of taking the passage. Uh, Many strong, good and godly men, reformed, Calvinistic people have said that. And I think that that is elsewhere. Remember, Jesus tells the man, go and do likewise. Remember, the guy comes and asks, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's the law say? And he cites out the law. And he says, well, then go and do likewise. And the guy pats himself on the back and says, you know, I've already done that. And Jesus says, okay, give your money to the poor and follow me. Oh, that's too much. The guy, can't, the guy can't stomach that. So that is a biblical teaching. No one can obey the law perfectly. Now, we don't know. what Does it mean that you could potentially, hypothetically, obey the law and be saved? No one's ever done it, right? Christ didn't need to save himself. He obeyed the law on our behalf. But if Paul was speaking hypothetically, it would be very clear, especially in Greek. There are certain words you use. In English, we would say if-then statements. If you obeyed the law, then you would be justified. He doesn't say that. He doesn't use that construction. 
Now notice what the verse is not saying. It's not actually saying that people are justified by doing the law. I always tell people prepositions matter and they matter a lot in theology. How is a person justified? What's the basis? What's the grounds of justification? Well, Paul says over and over that it's Christ alone, that it's faith alone and Christ alone. Justified by faith. He does not use that word here, not in English, you won't see it, and it's not indicated at all in the Greek text. Many Roman Catholics will say, well, see, here's the verse that tells you you have to add works to your faith to be saved. He doesn't say that. He doesn't talk about faith and works here. Faith is not even under discussion. That's coming later. He's focused on the Jew. He's focused on the law. So he's not saying you're justified by your works. In fact, he says in 3.20, go over to 3.20. He makes it real clear. This is how he finishes out the whole section. Everyone is under sin. Everyone is ruled by sin. Everyone is going to perish without Christ. That's the whole section that we've been going through all the way up to 3.20. Here's how he ends it. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You can't work, 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 work and earn your salvation. It's not by the works of the law. So what is he talking about here? Well, again, to the ancient Jewish person, very clear. We have to dig in. We have to put all the revelation God's given us together. We have to think about this passage. It's not a hypothetical statement. The flow here demands that Paul is talking about a future judgment where you come before the Lord. And remember what we've already looked at. You're going to be rewarded based on your works. You're saved based on Christ. You're rewarded based on works. You get payment. It's payment time. It's time to receive your wages. If you've lived in sin, Paul says the wages of sin is death, eternal punishment. But if you've lived in Christ, you get rewards, you get heaven, you get Christ forever, and all the different blessings and things that he'll give us to do in heaven. I think that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about justification being declared righteous at the moment that you're saved. He is saying when you stand before the Lord on judgment day, he'll be able to see your good works that you did for him. Remember last time we looked at Philippians 2, where you work out what God has put in you, not to earn anything, but because you are his. This ought to motivate us to do good deeds. Let's, let's develop the argument again. Go back to verse 6. We read this earlier. God will render to each person according to his deeds. Each person, everyone. God will render. Now he's talking again about payment, about rewards. 7 through 10, he contrasts those two paths, the two different people, those who do good works and those who do not. In other words, you claim to be different things. People say, I'm a Christian. We'll see by your works. Now, God knows all things, but he says it'll be proven by what you do. It will be proven. Have you ever gotten to an argument with somebody and they say, well, you don't know my heart. And they're right. You don't know their heart, but you're just trying to evaluate how they're living. And sometimes you're concerned about people, maybe family members who tell you they're Christians and they're not living like one. And so you come to them and you try to tell them, look, the, the evidence is not good. I'm really concerned about your salvation. And they say, you don't know my heart. Quit judging me. We don't know their heart, but we can look at the evidence. God knows our heart and he's still going to look at the evidence because he says, this is obvious. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
He didn't say, let's sit down and have a discussion about what your heart says. He said, here's the fruit. I can see it. It's bad away from me. So that's what Paul was talking about, I think, in 7 through 10. And, and like I said, scholars are divided on if this is hypothetical. I don't think it's hypothetical. Paul doesn't use that phraseology. So that's the context, building up to 12 and 13. There's two paths, there's two people. And in verse 13, he's saying, are those who just hear the word and do not do it, are they going to be saved? And Paul says, no. No, they're not going to stand before the Lord someday and somehow escape hell. It's the doers. It's the people who live it out. They show the fruit of what's already inside of them. They show that they have been redeemed. They show that they have been given a new heart. This is exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of the soils. The sower goes out and he throws the seed. The seed is the gospel. And it lands on different soil. And then at the last soil, he says, this is the good soil. The seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and they hold it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. Seed goes out, they hear the gospel, they believe, and they live out the change of heart that they've received. Now, Paul's skipping all that when he's talking to the Jew, but that is where he's getting at. And I'll show you some more texts that show us that's what he's talking about. Paul's saying the doers of the law will be justified. Future tense will be when they stand before the Lord. It won't just be, well, I said with my mouth that I loved you, Lord. He'll be able to see the works. The books will be open. And where are the good works? Look at Romans 1.4. What's Paul's mission going to the Gentiles? What's his purpose? He's saying, that he was designated as the son, Jesus was designated as the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we receive grace and apostleship. What, what's the purpose of him being an apostle? For the obedience of faith. For the obedience that flows from faith. He's going to take the gospel, and he's not just going to say the gospel and then get out of town. He's going to preach the gospel. People are going to be saved. He's going to stay there. He's going to teach them for years sometimes, like he did in Ephesus. He's going to write scripture back to the churches. He's going to encourage them. Why? For the obedience that flows from faith, that goes to the Lord. Because without the gospel, they'll never obey. They'll never love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I think even more clear is in chapter 8. Go to 8.3. Here he mentions obeying the law. Because sometimes we, we, we take, you can't be justified by the works of the law. And then we turn around and say, you know, Christians, you can't even really obey at all. Or you can obey a little bit, but we still stumble. That's true, but look how Paul says it. Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, the law can't save you. Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. The law can't save you, but God can, and he did that. Sending his own son. So here's how salvation happens. He sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Christ took on flesh. He did not sin. He was in the likeness of flesh like us. We sin. And as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What was the purpose? Show that righteous, the righteous requirement of the law. There it is there. The Mosaic law. Mosaic law requires the person who reads it, the person who knows it, to live a holy life. Christ came to die for sinners, and those who trust in him 
the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We still have, as Christians, we still have commands, don't we? Don't we still live out the commands of Christ? Doesn't He give us a law to obey? The Spirit is given to us. Christ died for us so that we might obey. Yes, we'll be forgiven. Yes, we'll be saved. But we're also expected to obey and produce fruit. There's four soils. Only one was saved. The one that produced fruit. So Paul's not talking about absolute sinless perfection. The doer of the law is not the believer who lives a perfect life. It's the believer who's striving through Christ in us, through the Spirit in you, so that you can honor the Lord with your life. So that you can strive and grow in holiness. You desire to be sanctified. Your life has a trajectory where you're becoming more and more sanctified, not less and less Christ-like. That would be bad fruit. Is this not what was promised in the new covenant? Is this not what was promised in the new covenant? Ezekiel 36, 27, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You know what a statute is? It's a command. You know what a command is? It's the law of God. Walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You know what ordinances are? Commands. That's the new covenant. We're not talking about the old covenant. There's a new covenant where God's going to put his spirit. He won't leave you. He'll be inside you in The purpose is so that you will obey. You won't be like Israel, who didn't have the Holy Spirit, and they were always flipping back and forth. Look at Philippians 2.12 again. I've already mentioned this. We're digging into this because it's so misunderstood, I think, and a lot of people misuse it. They take a text like this, and they say, well, look, you just got to work, work, work to be saved. Or they say, you know what? It's all free grace. Once saved, always saved. It doesn't matter what you do. You can go do whatever you want. Well, that's the ancient Jew. Hey, we're Abraham's seed. We have the Bible. We can live however we want. And Paul says it doesn't work like that. God will be able to look at your fruit. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the church in Philippi. And he's saying, you've always obeyed. He's not saying they're perfect. He's not saying they've never sinned even as a Christian. He's saying the general trend of your life is one of obedience. And I've noticed that not as in my presence, not just when I'm there, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. God's put it in you. Work it out. And he goes on in the next verse to say how God works through us and in us to accomplish the good deeds that he's even prepared, Ephesians says, before. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about marriage. He's talking about physical intimacy in marriage. He's talking about unbelievers, unbelieving spouse leaving the believing spouse. And right in the middle here, he interjects in 717 of 1 Corinthians. Look what he says. It's very interesting. You probably read right past it like I have and not thought much about it. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one. As God has called each. So God has called people from different stations in life. And different places. In this manner. Let him walk. So he's talking about the Christian life. Wherever you're at when God saves you. Continue to walk in that. You don't need to suddenly get rid of your family. Because you're a Christian. Change jobs. Change your positions. All of these things. You might need to if you're in sin. Change your job. 
But generally, that's not the case. But he's talking about the Christian life. So I direct all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Talking about a Jew. He is not to become uncircumcised. You can't really do that anyway. He's like, he's saying, don't try to change who God made you to be a Jew. You can't get rid of that. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? A Gentile. You're not to try to be circumcised. Submit yourself to the law. The Mosaic law is not for you. He says in 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. He's talking to believers right in the middle of how to live a godly life. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Let's now look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Is it possible, even before Christ came, is it possible that someone could have a redeemed heart, that God could change a sinner's heart that was a Jew, and they could live a righteous life? Not perfect, but a righteous life. Is that possible? Well, Luke chapter 1 tells us that. Luke 1. Let's look at verse 6. Now again, this is Zacharias. Zechariah the prophet. John the Baptist's father. This text does not say he's earning his salvation based on works. This is talking about the fruit of what God has already done in his heart. Talking about uh, these, this couple. They were both righteous in the sight of God. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. Was he trying to earn his salvation? No, he's already been saved. God has changed his heart. God saved people in the Old Testament. They looked forward to Christ. They have to have an atonement for their sin to be forgiven, to spend eternity with God. But once God changed their heart and they're looking forward and they're trusting in the promises of God, they seek to live out what he's commanded. Well, where is that? Where is that that Zechariah was trusting in the Messiah already? We'll skip forward to verse 67. Chapter 1, uh, verse 67. John the Baptist's father. John the Baptist has been born. Zechariah, suddenly he can speak again. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation. The horn of salvation in the Old Testament is, is a sign of the king and the coming Messiah. A horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. What he's saying is he's trusting in the Messiah. And John the Baptist is the sign that the Messiah is right around the corner. Skip down to verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Talking about his son. For you will go before the Lord to make ready his ways. That's Jesus. Jesus later refers to this. And he says, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. The Lord is coming. John the Baptist is going to be the prophet that prepares the way. The Lord is coming and he's going to give this to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise, again, a picture of the Messiah, the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to direct our feet into the way of peace. Wait a second, Zechariah and his wife were already righteous. Yeah, they were trusting in the one to come. There were people saved in the Old Testament. They trusted in the Messiah. They trusted in the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
They had faith. They were justified like Abraham was by faith alone. And then they lived out what they actually had in them, which was a changed heart. Well, we could go on looking at all these passages. I just want to take you one more passage here. That's to the book of James. Go to the letter of James. Again, many Roman Catholics will go to James chapter 2 and say, here's one more example of the Bible saying you have to have faith plus works, and that's how you're justified. Well, remember, back again, take it back to Romans 2. What Paul is saying there is when we stand before the Lord, he's going to say, law that you received and your works. How does that match up? For the Gentile, they don't have a law, but they have a law of the heart, and they've sinned even against that law, that moral law. For the Jew, the unbelieving Jew, they have the law of God, and they've sinned against that law. But there are doers of the law that will stand before God, and he'll say, here's what I told you to do. Here's what you did. And we know, we can say in parentheses, because Christ was in us. There it is. You did according to my commands. Not perfectly. We have Christ in us. Go to James 2. James is dealing with these people in church. We'll start in James 1, James 1, 22. He's dealing with people in church who grew up in this environment, in the Jewish environment, that they are saved. And now they're going to come over into Christianity. And they're saying, we hear the word. He says, but become doers of the word. Does that sound familiar? Doers of the law, doers of the word. Not merely hearers who delude themselves. James is much more in your face than Paul. Paul's pretty strong at times. James is much more in your face. Don't delude yourself thinking that you hear the Bible and you're saved. Do it. Do it. Do what it says. If you're a Christian, you will. Now skip forward to chapter 2. And he's going to open this up some more. His whole letter is about this. People who claim to be Christian, but they're not. Because they say, well, we have faith. And he says, look, the demons believe. The demons know theology. They're not saved. 2.20. Let me read this to you. Tell me if it doesn't sound familiar. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? We'll come back to that. Justified by works. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected or completed is the idea. His faith was shown to be completed. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So when Paul talks about justification, he never says justified by works. But in Romans 2, he is looking to that future judgment where even believers come before Christ And they will be rewarded based on the good works that they've done. Not, they don't get heaven. That's not the reward based on the good works. They get heaven because of Christ. They get Christ because of Christ. They get eternity because of Christ. Different levels of rewards in heaven, though, based on the good works. Now, what is James saying, though? And it's very interesting, this this quote from the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's going to use that in Romans 4. And he's going to say, look, Abraham is justified by faith alone. Abraham's justified by faith alone. And now here's James using it differently. Or is he? Or is he? Well, let's look at the passage here. James, let's just study the word justification. Justification means 
to be declared righteous. It's a declaration. When Paul uses it, except in Romans 2, when Paul uses it, he's talking about the moment you trust in Christ, you are declared righteous. But in Romans 2, he says, look forward to the judgment. God's going to look at what you've done. Then at that judgment, he will vindicate. He will make a declaration. You already have the declaration that you're saved. You do. But at the judgment, everyone will know. The whole universe. It will be a proclamation. It will be advertised on whatever the network is that goes out to the whole universe. He'll know. That's what James is getting at. James is saying, look, you come to church. You tell me you have faith. But you're not living it out. You're not living it out. Look at verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6, he believes in the promises of God. Okay, now back up. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? When is that in Genesis? Does it come before Genesis 15? No. That's Genesis 22. That's after Abraham has been declared righteous. God tests him. God says, take your only son. Go up to Mount Moriah, where the temple will eventually be built. Go up to Mount Moriah. Sacrifice your one and only son. It's a test. It's a test. See if he will obey. And and what James is saying is that was publicly a declaration that Abraham is declared righteous. He didn't earn anything by doing that. He was tested by God. And at that moment, publicly, it was declared. Publicly, the justification went out. The vindication. Publicly, what do I mean? Well, it's in the Bible. We all know. All the Jews knew that story. Everybody today knows that story. That's what he's getting at. That when we have faith, you will work out good works. And Isaac did that. And it's proof. The ultimate proof is that he was willing to take his son and sacrifice him on the mountain. And he completed that faith. Not that he added works to faith, but he showed everybody that he truly had faith. That was the ultimate good work that he could do, was to give his only son. That's all James is saying. He's saying, stop telling me you have faith, but you don't live it out. It will be declared publicly if you live out your faith that you are justified. Here's how Martin Luther said it. The Apostle Paul declares that without fruits, faith serves no purpose. To think, if faith justifies without works, let us work nothing. That's what people were saying in Luther's day. That's to despise the grace of God. Idle faith is not justifying faith. If you don't have any fruit in your life, then you aren't actually declared righteous. You don't have true faith. That's what the Bible says over and over. That's what Luther is getting at. That's why King Solomon said at the end of his book, at the end of Ecclesiastes, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Not to earn your salvation, but if you are his, fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. None of this, you don't know my heart, God. God knows your heart. But he's not even going to have to look there. He can see there, of course, but he'll just say, where's the fruit? There it is. Here's my law. How do you compare? So that's what Paul's saying in Romans 2. I know we've gone around the Bible looking at this, but we need to understand it rightly. Or we might start to think, 
Paul is contradicting himself. Or we might start to think Paul is just making a hypothetical statement. That would defeat the argument. Here's how MacArthur, John MacArthur wraps this up. He says the idea here is not that obeying the law will produce justification. Because scripture makes clear that justification comes only through faith. But they will be demonstrated. Demonstrated. Shown is the idea. They will be demonstrated to be just by the evidence of their doing God's holy law. Again, Paul is pointing to the same truth as James in regards to the relationship between faith and works. And also like James, is using justification in the sense of completed or perfected salvation. Now don't misunderstand. He's not saying, and I'm not saying, you get declared justified and then you add something later plus works when you stand before the Lord. Salvation occurs through Christ alone. And you have faith in Him and you are saved. That is the gospel. But God will bring you before the seat of Christ and He will be able to see your works. And that fruit will be evident. Sometimes on the earth as we live, we can hide things. Sometimes the, the, the false believer can hide things and make it seem like they're godly, but not before Christ, not before God. He will see everything. Here's my law that I gave you. Here's what you did. Everyone outside of Christ will fail the test. They've either been, either been given the law, the moral law, or the law in Scripture. And they will fail the test, but if they have Christ, they will have produced good fruit, and God will say, obvious, it's obvious. Come and be rewarded. Take your rest. Receive the heavenly rewards. Remember that if you're not in Christ, though, you will fail that test every single time. You cannot earn your salvation. If the Jews couldn't do it, if no one in the Bible could do it, then we cannot. That is true. And Paul is simply saying it's the doers that show themselves to be justified and will be declared that at the last day. Let's ask God for help as we live that out. Lord, thank you so much that you give us deep theological texts, that we get to dig into it, that we get to see what the whole theology you've given us in Scripture is, and that we get to understand the argument that you've impressed upon Paul as he has developed it here. Help us not to live and some kind of uh, notion that we're saved based on works, or that we can just show up and say, we have faith, that's all, and yet never produce fruit. Lord, please work in our hearts. Please, for every Christian, let us examine ourselves, Lord, to see where we stand, not just in our beliefs, but are we actually living out what we claim that you've worked in us? And if any of us here examine ourselves, And Lord, determine that we're not saved. I pray, I pray, Lord, you would work in that heart, that you would convict that person, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and we would start to see it with good fruit. We pray that you would do this among us for your glory, not for ours, but for your glory. Amen.